One of the largest issues of life is priorities. You know, whether we consciously think about it, we are prioritizing things all the time. We prioritize our time. How are we going to spend it? Where are we going to spend it? And what are we going to invest it? We prioritize fiscally. How and when and where are we going to spend the money that we have? We prioritize in relationships. In whom am I going to invest myself and my time and my energy? And to whom am I going to give my heart? You get into a relationship and you realize very very quickly, if it's a good relationship, that the other person that is a part of your life now has a bearing on your priorities. You know, it's not just this is about me and what I want. Now it's about what we want. And, and then you have to remind yourself that, well, that wouldn't be good for her or that wouldn't be good for him. And that other person has a bearing on priorities. We think about priorities all the time, though we process them often subconsciously. But they're a huge part of our lives. But as big as they are for us, no one cares more about our priorities more than God does. God is concerned about how we spend our time and our energy and our lives. Because the end result of our priorities has much to do with with how we live on this earth and eventually how we live in eternity. God is concerned about our priorities. So it really shouldn't surprise us when when we come to the Ten Commandments and God is laying out for His people some of the most important things that that are involved in them being His people, the very first thing He says to them and to us is a word about priorities. This first of the Ten Commandments is, is such a brief, succinct statement. He simply says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then He moves on. But the importance and the significance of that short, brief, succinct command is something that weaves its way into every part of our being and every moment of our lives. Now, I think most of us don't realize how susceptible we are to being idolaters of having other gods. But when I read the Scriptures, I recognize very quickly that God understands that. The prophets understand. Jesus certainly understands our penchant for idolatry. When when Jesus is asked to summarize all the law of the Old Testament, He says that the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Now it may appear that Jesus is contradicting the Ten Commandments, but what does it mean to love except to make someone your highest priority? What does it mean to love except to sacrifice for someone, to to make everything else secondary? And that's really the heart of God's first command to Israel, 
don't love anything more than you love me. Put me first. God says to his people, look, if, if you want to be my people, you can't have other gods besides me, before me. If you're going to be a part of my kingdom, then your first love and your highest priority is me. In fact, that's what it means to be a part of my kingdom. And I'm not so sure we always grasp that. You know, I think one of the reasons we struggle about, to, about putting other things before God, about, about idolatry, is that so many of the things that, that sneak into that first place and that highest priority in our lives are, are good things. You know, they're, they're things that, that bring joy and, and, and fulfillment and, and value and worth to us. And we say, well, they can't be all that bad if they do that. And so we put things like our relationships ahead of God. You know, our spouse, our child, our siblings, our friends. And you know, I mean... How bad can that be? I mean, it's people, right? I mean, we're in relationship with people. I know God wants us to have good relationships. So what's the big deal? I think that that's one of the reasons we're so defensive when, when Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to hate your family. And we go, whoa, hate your family. And he doesn't mean we ought to have bitter feelings toward our family. It's simply probably a shocking way of reminding us that God must be first. Now, again, don't misunderstand. Our, our family, our relationships are very important. In fact, they are too important to let anyone run our lives. They are too important to put that kind of pressure on another person. I mean, you think of the pressure we're putting on someone to make them our idol, to put them above God. I don't want that kind of pressure. And we're asking an awful lot of people to say and to think and to live as though that person could be God for us. People can't handle that. None of us can. And what we need to understand is that eventually... All of those people are at some point going to fail us. They're going to fall short of our dreams and our desires for, that we have for them. They're never going to be what only God can be. But relationships aren't the only gods that we struggle with. There are lots of others. In this community, I think education is probably one of the things that we're tempted, that we're tempted to put ahead of God. Education is a blessing from God. It's a gift from God. And we ought to give thanks every day that we have the opportunity to be educated. Because many people in the world don't have that opportunity. But it can't be more important than God is. And we have other things. We, we put materialism, our sexuality, our work, fame, success, power. Someone once asked me a few years ago, do you think sports could be an idol? Yes. 
mean, all these things are good. And they're all gifts from God and they're things that bless our lives. But that's what makes idolatry so heinous. We take a gift of God and because it brings fulfillment to us and because it makes us feel good and important, we set it up and make it our idol. We make it the aim and the goal of our lives. And that's why Augustine defined idolatry as worshiping anything that ought to be used or using anything that ought to be worshipped. And that's why something even as spiritual as ministry can become an idol for us. I mean, when we become more interested and feel more fulfilled and more defined by our work for God than by God Himself, we have disobeyed the first commandment. Some of you will remember uh, Dennis Kinlaw telling about early days of his ministry when he, he lost his voice and no one could figure out what was going on. And, you know, he was very worried because he was a preacher and it's kind of hard to preach when you don't have a voice to speak. And he said his first thought when he found out about this and they didn't know what to do was, Lord, how am I going to support my family? It's all I've ever done. And then immediately he realized, well, God will take care of us. He said, then my next thought was, but Lord, I, I love to preach. I, I love the ministry. I, I, I love speaking your word. Lord, preaching's my life. And he said it was as though the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, oh, really? I thought I was your life. And he said, as I realized what had happened, I repented. And he said, it was amazing as I began to turn that over to God, how quickly my voice got better. You know, it's hard for us because this whole thing of, of, of putting nothing before God is so countercultural to what we are taught and what's modeled for us. I mean, our culture, all around the world, and even within the walls of the church, rewards idolatry. I mean, we're tempted to do that all the time, because it's when we, when we are so obsessed with things that we tend to be successful in the eyes of people. And, and it's in those moments where we tend to gain value and worth and recognition, and it's hard to let that stuff go. But eventually, it's all going to go whether we like it or not. I mean, at some point, all of the other gods that we worship, all of the idols that take first place in our lives are going to either disappear or fail us or crash or be snatched away from us. Because none of those things are eternal. Only God is. And only God promises never to fail us or to forsake us or to leave us. I'm continually amazed at, when I read the Old Testament of how, how often and how quickly Israel runs after other gods. When you, when you begin to compare the descriptions of of the other gods, the gods of Canaan and Babylon and, and the Philistine gods and, to Yahweh. I mean, there is no comparison. I mean, I mean these other gods are, are evil and vindictive and, 
You know, this sort of glorified human beings with all of the sinfulness of human beings. They don't want to do anything good for people. They give anything they give away. It's done begrudgingly or at a high cost or because they're just badgered long enough. But on the other end, you have Yahweh who says to His people over and over again, I love you. I'm for you. I love to give good gifts to you. Remember, he started these commands by reminding them, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into freedom. That's the kind of God I am. And yet the Israelites keep running away from him. And we shake our heads and think, how could they do that? And then we look in the mirror and realize there are gods to which we run as well. You know, this command makes no sense until we see it in the light of God's love for us. And there's no clearer picture of God's love to inspire us to worship Him and to put Him first than the cross. That God sends His one and only Son, pays the ultimate price for our freedom. And there's no clearer human moment for for understanding God's love than than the table of our Lord. We come to this table and we celebrate what God has done for us and the love that He's given to us in Jesus Christ. It is a table bathed in God's love. Not only of, of God's love, it's also a table of death. The death of Christ. And it's a table where we hear God's call for us to come and to die. To die to self. To die to these other gods. To come and surrender. You know, it seems to me that uh, the Sermon on the Mount might be considered Jesus' commentary on the Ten Commandments. As you go through them, you, you see number of times where, where Jesus uh, illuminates and, and gives more understanding of, of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. And he doesn't touch them all, but a lot of them. And, and in light of that, it strikes me that the Beatitudes are perhaps Jesus' commentary on this first commandment. When you read the Beatitudes and you hear him say, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are those who who are meek. Blessed are those who who are willing to be persecuted for my sake. He's talking about people who are willing to surrender, willing to give up their rights, willing to die to self. He says, if you want to be blessed, if you want to know fulfillment and joy, then you come and you surrender. You come and you die. You give up yourself to me. You put all these other things aside and you make your life about me and me only and what I want for you. The Beatitudes remind us that that it is a call to come and to surrender and to die. C.S. Lewis says that the Christian way is different from any other religious system. It's both harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time and so much of your work and so much of your money. I want you. 
I've not come to torment your natural self. I've come to kill it. No half-hearted measures are going to be good enough. I don't want to cut off a branch here or there. I want to chop down the whole tree. I don't want to, to, uh, to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to pull it out. He says, I want you to hand over your natural self and all the desires that you think are innocent and all the desires that you think are wicked. I want the whole thing. And this commandment is a call for us to give the whole thing, to come and to die. To come and to die so that we might live and live in his blessing and his fullness. You know, I, it's interesting because in all the conversations I've had through the years and the experiences that I've read about and known about of people who have surrendered all of themselves to God, I have never yet heard or read of anyone who at the end of that journey came back and said, well, that was a disappointment. Everyone gets to the end of the journey and says, I can't imagine it being any better. What I thought was giving up so much was nothing compared to the blessing that was given back. And when I thought I was losing, I was winning. When I thought I was dying, I was living. When I gave up self, I was given Christ. God says, that's what happens when you put those gods out of your life. Now, this first commandment is, is in many ways the foundation for the rest of the other nine. I suspect that if we don't get a good grasp on this first one, it's going to be difficult for us to really understand what God is saying to us in the rest that follow. Because until we surrender ourselves to God, or at least until we have a desire to surrender ourselves to God, I don't think we can really understand the other things, the other demands that God is placing upon us. It all starts with this surrender. You know, as the Sermon on the Mount comes to an end, Jesus tells a parable about two houses. These houses look exactly the same. Got the same blueprints, same design, same contractor, same materials. Everything's exactly the same. The only difference is that one house is built on solid rock, and the other house is built on sand. And Jesus says these two houses are built, and they look exactly the same to anyone who would walk by. And no one knows the difference until the day that the storm comes. And on that day when the the rain begins to pelt down upon the houses and the wind blows against them and and the thunder peals from the sky and, and the lightning flashes and the waves break up onto those homes, he says the home that's built on the solid rock stands firm. 
but the house built on the sand comes crashing to pieces. And the only difference is the foundation. Which foundation are you building your life upon? The foundation with God at the center, with the desire in your heart to surrender to Him all that you are. the foundation with yourself at the center. And all the gods that we are so tempted to worship, it does make a difference in eternity and in this life. God calls us to worship Him and Him alone. Gracious Father, we do pray that you will help us to put you first. Lord, we pray that you will help us, first of all, to recognize those gods that take root in our hearts. And we pray that you will fill us with a desire to surrender to you all of those things. Father, help us to see that your call to us is a call of love and mercy and blessing. That as we come and and die, we find life. Father, as we prepare to gather at your table, we do give you thanks for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all of the ways that you have blessed us in him and through him. Father, in which we remember all of his mighty acts, we ask you to accept our sacrifice, our sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, which we offer in union with Christ's sacrifice for us. We come and we surrender ourselves and offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you. We pray that you will send the power of your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts that at the breaking of the bread and the drinking of the cup we may know the presence of the living Christ. That we will be one body in him cleansed by his blood. And that we will faithfully serve Him in this world and look forward with joy to His coming in final victory. In His name and power and grace, we pray. Amen.